So we're doing a series through uh, the Bible, through especially what's called the 12, the 12, um, the 12 minor prophets. And I've got the privilege of being the second in line on this. And, um, and I, I, I kind of wanted to think a little bit about how do we get back to here from there? How do we get from here to there? And, uh, and so I want to direct you, you know, I, for this whole service, if you have your Bible open, that would be great, but I don't want you to chase the Bible. I'm going to read a good translation, and, and I want you to hear it as, as God's word. Um, in James chapter 1, it says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in the context of that, God, is you're in trials and you're like, how the heck do I get joy? Well, he says something really gracious. If any of you lacks wisdom... And it's this kind of wisdom. It's general wisdom too, but it's wisdom for joy in trial. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So before we start, let's pray for that wisdom. And then guess what? We're going to turn to the book of Joel and he's going to speak to you audibly through his word and you're going to get that wisdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us together today. Oh Lord, sustain me. I am keyed up and happy and so full of joy right now. And I pray that as together with your people, we go through your word, that we would see your gracious work through the whole history of humanity and that we would receive the Holy Spirit that is promised in these pages and it would give us strength He would give us strength and power to serve you on mission for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now i got to find where my sermon is. Here it is. Oh man, what a year it has been. If you hadn't noticed, oh by the way, you're all wearing masks to protect yourself from a deadly virus that may have been created in a, in, a, in, a, in a lab or it may have come from an animal. I don't know. <laughs> but it has changed everything. It has been a trial on us for a year and a half now. And I, I don't know about you, many of us have lost huge amounts of income, and that's, that's so crass to even say in the face of the nearly four million people globally that have died. Many of you may have a relative, you know someone, it's affected your life. Any of us with older kids, all our kids are home. It's a nightmare. You wanted a full quiver, but you didn't want all the arrows like running into them as you walked through the house. <laughs> and then that's what it's like. And I remember sitting down, I mean, you remember me at the prayer meeting just a month or two ago, and just telling you we were crying at home, weeping together with our kids. 
because of all they've lost and all the struggles that they've encountered. It's been very, very hard. And so we need this message. We need it so badly. Because I don't know about you, but I have not been faithful to the word, the obedience that this word is calling us to in the midst of this trial. I've grumbled, I've complained, I've been upset, I've comforted myself with any number of things rather than the truth that this relational God who made everything and is in the process of revealing himself to us poured out his very spirit into me and you. And that's where we need to be taking our strength. keep it on the rails. Earlier, just before I was thinking of this illustration, I'm in a Jeep. You're all with me. The canyon arrow. We got a winch on the front. We're going to hook it to the cross. We're down in the valley and we're just going to winch our way up to the, to the cross, the foot of the cross. So what is the book of Joel? As with many of the prophets, we don't know a lot about Joel. We just get this. Joel, son of Pethuel. That name means Yahweh is God, which is pretty powerful. But, but that's all we have. We don't even know much about the date of Joel. Could it be post-exilic? Could it be pre-exilic? We don't know. Nobody agrees. I'm going to kind of go with the idea that it's post-exilic, but honestly, that doesn't affect the application here hardly at all. In the flow of the 12, the book of Joel moves from the highly specific sin that we just saw last week of spiritual adultery to more general sense that the covenant has been violated. And today we're going to see this in three ways. And these sort of represent uh, what we call the melody line of the minor prophets. And you're going to see these themes over and over and over again. You might get sick of them, but hopefully you won't because every time it's going to bring you straight to Jesus. The first is that God brings judgment, that he commands repentance, but then he brings restoration. And restoration isn't even a good word here because it's restoration plus, 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 plus. It's all kinds of new things. It's revival. It's goodness. It's power. So the first thing we're going to look at is judgment. And I'm going to read from the book of Joel uh, a number of... Hopefully I can avoid chasing. No, I got my thing in the wrong place. There we go. We're going to read the passages in Joel that is roughly... Roughly these themes are, are separated into the three chapters. However, there's a bit of overlap. And so I'm just going to read you some selections, and hopefully you can get a feel for what's going on here. Hear the word of God. This is God speaking. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children. Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, 
the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Utter destruction. Now skipping to verse 15, it says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now to chapter 2. Look at this. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the, of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people there like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And then lastly to verse 11 of chapter 2, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Isn't that terrifying? It's not from somewhere else, it's his. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? When we look at a passage like this, we have to understand, and this is a bit of review from what James showed us last week, we have to understand the relationship of God to his people. In this case, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And Joel begins his pro prophecy, he calls the people to pay attention because all Jews would have been aware of the narrative of their people. Just like many of you, you know the, the story of your parents getting married. You might know the story of how your grandparents came to Canada or even your parents came to Canada. And, and you know the narratives of your people. The narrative of the Jewish people is one of covenant relationship with God. Last week, we had a, sorry, I skipped ahead there. The, the terror of this judgment that's described in here, it bears all the more weight because it's not blind wrath of creation. You think about the high temperatures in BC, you think about the various ways in which we've experienced this alienation and challenge with creation under COVID, right? That this is not the blind work of a blind watchmaker. This is the personal work of a living God who's in relationship both with his people then and now with his church. And last week we had this visceral example of this personal nature of the covenant because God made with his people. God himself commanded it to be image, this, this covenant relationship. He wanted the brokenness of this covenant to be imaged through the marriage of a prophet to a broken and perverse sexual relationship. He was supposed to marry a prostitute. The euphemized word in modern culture, a sex worker, a porn star, a whore. That was how broken his relationship, the, the people of Israel's relationship with God. And it can be hard to fathom for us. Sorry, in, a, in, in Hosea, the relationship between a man and a woman 
But here in Joel, the broken nature of the covenant is displayed through natural disaster. So last week, the marriage relationship. This week, natural disaster. And it can be hard for us to fathom in a post-agrarian culture like we live in, um, but for the Jews, a plague of locusts represents the curses brought to Adam when Adam and Eve sinned against God, our first parents, and it turns them up to 11. Takes the dial all the way past its furthest point. Haven't you felt that this year? That you're alienated from the very created order? That we walk among each other and we can't embrace, we can't touch, we can't gather or we haven't been able to gather in the way that we're really meant to gather? You feel something of the same kind of alienation that Joel's first hearers would have felt? I say all that to preface our definition of the covenant that was given last week, and I'll state it again, but I wanted to make sure that we don't hear that definition as just like, a covenant is. No, it is an an agreement defining a permanent relationship between parties. But in this case, not just parties, the living God and his people. The background to much of this push and pull of the relationship between God is the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28. And this is where we're kind of getting into the the people being aware of the narrative story of their people. And stay with me here because I really want to dig a little bit deeper into this than we did um, last week. And it's going to be dug into a lot because this chapter is the template for almost everything that the prophets ever bring to the people of God. James mentioned last week that Deuteronomy 27 to 30 represents this this, uh, articulation of these blessings and curses given to the people of Israel. The covenant obligation, along with promised blessings for obedience and promised curses for disobedience... Israel, first of all, was promised blessing. And if you read this, it's mind-blowing. This blessing is a complete reversal of the fall. It basically brings this, them into what on paper looks like a utopian existence. He promises and commands them. He says, keep the whole law. This is verse 1 and 2 of chapter 27. Keep the whole commandment that I commanded you to the land that the Lord, the God to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The height of blessing, it says, if you're faithful to obey the voice of the Lord your God, he will set you high above the nations. Can you imagine that? Israel enthroned as the most, not the little sliver in the Middle East, enthroned over all the nations. He blesses everything in this passage from their kneading bowls to their livestock. And he's basically showing them that obedience to God's law will reverse the curse of the fall. On the other hand, if they disobey, all the curses of the fall will be turned up also to 11. 
chapter 28, verse 67 or 68 says, you will be returned to Egypt as slaves and no one will buy you. You will eat your sons and daughters and begrudge a morsel to your neighbor. It's disgusting. It's as if they are cast in to a hell. But snuggled right in the middle of all this is God's promised curse of locusts. In verse 20 in chapter 28:38 it says, "You shall carry much seed to the field. If you're disobedient, you're going to carry seed to the field, but you'll gather little for the locust shall consume it." Some commentators, I don't even know if this is worth bringing up, but some commentators argue, is this locusts or is it an army? And, and I'd almost venture to say it's irrelevant. The level of destruction brought is beyond fathoming. When you read accounts of locust plagues, there are, there are situations in which the locust would so fill the sky it would completely black out the sun, and then after the locusts were, were starting to move on and they'd eaten everything, huge swathes of them would die, and they would fill the shores of their water supply, and then thousands more people would die as a result of the secondary pestilence of all the dead bugs. As deep and as dark and as difficult as all this judgment is, in Deuteronomy 30, there's a promise of, of restoration. It's astounding in its mercy and grace. It's as astounding as the terror and judgment is horrific. Yahweh promised that no matter how cursed and alienated God's people became, if they repent and return and obey, he will take them back and restore them greater than before. Now, the next sort of aspect of this judgment that I need to dig into a little bit is this concept of the day of the Lord. Now, I read about it here in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Joel, it says, The Lord utters his voice before his army. This judgment is coming against Israel because of their sin. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first kind of encountered this phrase, the day of the Lord or the day that God has made, it was like, this is the day, this is the day. Some of you sang that. Some, most of you are too young for that, maybe. <laughs> That's not this. The day of the Lord is described in Amos as darkness and not light. It's described here as awesome. Who can endure it? Because what the day of the Lord is, biblically speaking, is any time 
when God comes into history so pointedly and swiftly and terrifyingly that he brings judgment against sin. He displays his holy desire to see the world rid of sin. And although certain events are not explicitly called the day of the Lord, you can imagine in your head that they are a day of the Lord. When the rain fell and all of humanity was destroyed except Noah and his family, the day of the Lord. When Israel escaped from, Is- from, from Egypt and they went through the Red Sea on dry land and behind them came the Pharaoh and his armies and the sea crashed in on them and murdered them, the day of the Lord. But in this part of the Bible, the day of the Lord isn't judgment against their sin, somebody else's sin, not my problem. It's judgment against Israel's sin. They have to accept it. But there's a double side. There's two sides to the coin of the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is not only this time of swift judgment against sin when God shows how much he wants to rid the world of all this terribleness. But it's also a day when he brings, he inaugurates the promises to restore and bring all things to a bright future. It holds in tension this terrible holiness of God. See, the, the, Ill, the imagery words that are used when it comes to the day of the Lord are blood and darkness and gloom and terror. And as much as those just seem like straight-up bad things, they also have a good aspect because when God brought his people Israel out into the wilderness... He covered the top of Mount Sinai, the center of his worship, with a cloud of thick darkness. He led them through the desert with a pillar of fire and cloud. His presence, because of his extreme holiness and his hatred of sin, is both compelling, you can't look away, and terrifying, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And that's what drives us to repentance. It drove the people of Israel to repentance because they knew that they walked through the wilderness following God, knowing that he was leading them to a brighter future. But through the whole path, there were terrors and trials and difficulties. But they needed to keep walking because they knew that God had revealed himself to Moses as gracious, loving, Steadfast love to a thousand, thousand, thousand generations. That's why you sit here. Don't you ever sit back and just think of yourself in the grand scheme of human history? You are the sons and daughters of the living God, still worshiping him as he has commanded all these years later. It's this goodness and kindness of God that brings us to repentance. If you look with me, uh, we're going to read scripture again. Uh, We're going to read scripture again, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. 
It says this, and this is the, the commands given by Joel to the people who are hearing his prophecy. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's a complete undoing of creation. And look with me at chapter 2, verse 12, and start to see this hope. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. I read a book recently called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe by Niall Ferguson. Highly recommend it. Uh, It was written over this last year, and it catalogs all of these different tragedies that have befallen humans and goes from ancient history to many things in the last century, including the flu pandemics of 58, 68, and of course, COVID. All of these things are a blip. They're a blip. And they don't feel like it now. But God is asking both his people then and his people now to come to him in repentance. Sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, the application for the Old Testament people is somewhat different than the application of the New Testament people. And and there are aspects of difference. For instance, in the Old Testament, we clearly know that this plague given to the people of Israel, proclaimed through Joel, was a judgment on their sin. Now, when we look at COVID or various other things, I mean, we could live in a war-torn country. We're just dealing with, with COVID right now. We're also seeing a lot of cultural upheaval. You could be tempted to say, this is a one-to-one correlation judgment against you. That is for God to know, but he hasn't revealed that to us. However, any time you experience the depth of the brokenness of this life, rather whether it be through a shattered marriage or the fact that you've lost your income, you've had relatives that have died, and you've had to wear masks and not see each other for 15 months. We should be called to humble repentance before God. James says as much, because the the, the manner that repentance is commanded to the people of Israel in this book are all very practical things that you can get your hands around. But his hope is that the reality matches the action. 
in the book of Joel, we don't see a direct um, accusation of a particular sin like you do in other prophets. Other books of the prophets, you've been spiritually unfaithful, you're worshiping idols, do this. You're trusting in your own goods, you're trusting in chariots and war, no, no, do this, rely on me that. God's very specific with the sin. Here he's very general with the sin. However, I think we can get a clue for what the sin is when we look at that line, rend your hearts and not your garments. There was something about the devotion of Israel that had ceased to have inner faith toward God. They were doing the right things, but they weren't doing it with the right heart. And before you get yourself on a little evangelical roller coaster here, just I want to rein you in for a second. Because um, as, as modern Christians, we love to be like, oh yeah, man. It's heart reality. I want to get my heart right. But heart reality doesn't for a second dissuade Joel from commanding, mourn, wail, weep, create, have a solemn assembly. And in James chapter um, Four, verse 9, he says the exact same thing. He says, weep, wail, mourn, and turn to the Lord. See, what we get wrong is we don't understand the unity between our body, our physical presence, and our spiritual aspects of our life. Remember, the command of God in the Old Testament is love the Lord your God with all your body, with all your strength, with all your soul. The soul isn't an ethereal thing. It's the unity of this. This is the soul of Nathan before you. My spirit is in me, and this is my soul. And so when I come to God in repentance, I give him all of it. And I'm not dissuaded by the fact that he might command me to wail and weep and mourn. The thing is, some of us get hung up on like, should I raise my hands? Should I clap? I mean, you know what I'm like. Don't worry about it. But I'm asking you. When you do those things, part of the reason you do those things is so you feel the disconnect. I raise my hand and in my heart I'm like, oh. I'm not there yet. So I raise my hand and I feel the disconnect. And I push myself toward the living God. Asking that he would meet me in repentance. James tells us that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is the same thing, both for the people of Israel and for us right now. If you're burdened because you disobeyed government mandates, but you don't have a good reason in your theology for why it would be okay, repent. Turn to the Lord. Don't let your conscience be violated. If you cultivated the judgmental spirit toward your brothers and sisters because 
I always wear my mask, but that dude, I mean, it's always falling down. I don't know what to do with that guy. Repent. Come to the Lord. No matter what side you are on the many things that have divided us over the last year, turn your heart toward God. The blessed truth is he will meet you. He will meet you. He will meet you. We could dwell on that aspect of repentance for a long time, but I want to get really to to the final and most hopeful aspect of this message, that God restores those that repent. Everyone who repents is fully restored. Look at this with me. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. It's really interesting, this relationship with God and the land. He doesn't, he doesn't first think about, about the people. He says, I hate the burden you are on the land. I'm going to fix the people so that the land has rest. We see that in Romans 8, the all creation groaning for the day when the sons of God are revealed. Okay, keep the commentary down. Let's keep going. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Skipping to verse 21. Fear not, O land. There, the land again. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. He cares for the beasts. We're going to see that in Jonah. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication and has poured down on you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, like the seasons being restored like God promised to Noah. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you. Have hope right now. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Now listen here. You may recognize this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. The great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. 
And so lastly, let's look at chapter 3, 16, and 18. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. He's a, he's a lion tracking down our enemies. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And lastly, verse 20 and 21 to finish the book. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. These passages promising restoration hold the difficult path of faith for the people of God. They see it ahead of them, but they only see it in part. See, hope... They have a hope of a much greater fulfillment that would be seen, that wouldn't be seen, depending on when this was written, for another six to seven hundred years. So this blip of a locust plague in their lives, they have some hope that fairly soon they will see relief. It says that they're, they're going to have trees that are green again. It says that they're going to have the years that the locusts took that are restored. But then in verse 21 and 26, right up to the line, you shall never be put to shame, we start looking into the future. Now, it's at this point that I think we need to go back to Deuteronomy again. Because in Deuteronomy... I read you a little bit of the restorative promises, but I didn't read you the whole thing. It's keeping the goodies. And the Lord your God, it says, when he restores you, will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring. And what that means, it's a strange term, right? It means that God will kind of cut away that which is dead and useless around your heart and make it so your heart is tender and able to know him and full of love and forgiveness and affection to this God so that you won't ever have that disconnect. That you'll be able to say, my heart is renewed. I raise my hand and God fills in the gap. He circumcises their heart and says this, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. Israel was to put their hope in that future promise and walk for the next six or seven hundred years, trusting that one day those things would come to pass. And one day they did. There was a man named Peter, and he was a fisherman in first century Palestine. And he was faithful to the Lord. He was a gruff dude, but he loved the Lord. And one day there was a man named Jesus who Peter came across. And this man, Jesus, was proclaiming the rule and reign of God over everything. And he was healing the sick, and he was raising the dead, and he was giving sight to the blind, as a reversal up to 11, that the curse was being reversed and that God was in control. Peter followed this man for three years and understood his whole teaching. And we're here worshiping him today. But then 
the rulers and authorities of the world who wanted to keep a hold of all the sin and darkness that had plagued all of humanity, instead of acknowledging the kingship of Jesus, put him to death and crucified him on a Roman cross. Jesus died, was buried in the ground, and three days later, he reversed the curse of death and was raised from the dead. Peter saw all this, and even though he struggled with his faith the whole time, even though at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, he denied him, he became the kind of man that went out and changed the whole world. So much so than the book of Acts, chapter 2, there's a season where the city of Jerusalem is full of people for the festival to worship God. And Peter and all of the disciples that were followers of Jesus suddenly are speaking in tongues. That means that they're, they're speaking in known and unknown languages that only can be interpreted by people who know that language already or who, have, who are somehow in their mind receiving the truth of that, of that speech. And when that happens, Peter thinks of Joel because he spent his whole life understanding the narrative of his people. And he says... I got to time this better next time. He says that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. You know, as Christians, we don't really think about how utterly transformative this is. In the Old Testament, the spirit wasn't commonly available. Occasionally, people like Bezalel, a great artisan for the temple or for the tabernacle, was given the spirit to produce art. David, or Saul for a time, was filled with the Spirit. Prophets were said to sometimes be filled with the Spirit. But the idea that the Spirit would be utterly leveled across all of humanity was unknown. Think of how radical this statement is. And in the last day, and I'm reading from Acts now as Peter is quoting it. And in the last day it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. It's for everyone. Even your male and female servants. Doesn't matter what strata of society you come from, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below Blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is this Lord? Who is this Lord that shall save you? Paul, one of the most prolific writers in the whole New Testament, was deeply steeped in the book of Joel. The book of Joel comes out all over. In fact, some commentators say that per size of the book of Joel, it is one of the most influential books of the Old Testament on the New. And I'm going to just show you to close just a couple things. 
in Romans chapter 10, Paul sees this great gospel, this message of God's salvation. And he sees this passage from Joel and he identifies the Lord that you call on with the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That comes straight from what was just said in Joel. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing on his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and he's speaking about Jesus here, will be saved. How many here, you don't need to raise your hands right now, have called on the name of the Lord? We've called on the name of the Lord. You do not need to live in a one-to-one relationship. If I sin, God brings judgment. No. If I sin, I call on the name of the Lord. And what am I given? Salvation. New creation to 11. The very spirit of the living God. We started this message talking about the relational nature of God. The relational nature of God. Well, here's the thing. God came into the world through Jesus Christ to show us the Father. That was God incarnate in the world, relating to people, teaching them, guiding them, showing them. When Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, and he fulfilled the prophecy of Joel, he brought God so close that he whispers in your dreams. He speaks to you. Because this is the God who wants to know you and wants to pour his love in your heart. Think of what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. You'll never look at this passage again the same way. Think of Joel. Now in the book of Joel, it says he poured out the Holy Spirit. And and I shouldn't even go here. I'm I'm already there, so we're going to finish it out. In the Septuagint, the Greek used in the book of Joel, this word poured out. I don't have the word. I don't want to confuse you with any words. But it's the same word that Paul uses here in Romans 5. And I'll I'll show you where it is here. It says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. You believe, you call on the name of the Lord, you're good. God has you. He's got a hold of you. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what happens when we encounter trials? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. COVID suffering, locust suffering, loss of income suffering, divorce suffering, your own persistent sin that you can't shake off suffering. Knowing something new about suffering. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Remember that promise that there'll never be shame? Because God's love has been poured out, just like Joel. Same word. Into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us.
Brothers and sisters, this has been such a hard time. But God has poured out your love in your hearts so that you wouldn't waste this suffering, that it would result in joy. What is going to happen when he restores the years that COVID has eaten? He's going to send us out on mission. Because just like Paul said in Romans 10, who's going to hear unless somebody preaches? Tell your friends and family the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer. Tell them that they may be saved because you are filled with the Holy Spirit precisely for this task. Let's pray.